Well, Kyle, the analogy you just made actually gives me occasion to bring up a theory that I've been developing and kind of nurturing for a while. Uh-oh. Um, and it really, a lot of it builds off on some of the stuff that uh, Jeff has pointed out in the past about the character of Cooper uh, being inherently flawed uh, and needing to, having gone to the Black Lodge uh, and having shown fear, a fear that was founded upon uh, his attachments and his relationships uh, and and the, the love that he had in particular for Annie, uh, but to a lesser extent with, you know, Wyndham Earl's wife and uh, a, 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 for whatever reason, he was lacking in his ability uh, to master uh, and have control over those attachments to the point that he didn't show fear uh, in the Black Lodge, uh, which resulted in his, you know, his, his functional obliteration and the appearance of uh, this, you know, truly evil character that we call um, Mr. C or Doppelkooker, Doppelkooper, Cooper's Doppelganger. Um, you know, we've said a lot about the works that David Lynch uh, and Mark Frost have planned to do in the past or were, were going to do in the past and they never got made, whether it's the Lemurians or did somebody just make a fucking bagel or what? <laughs> No, I was following you intently. I was not. I, I don't know. Wait, wait, I guess somebody's wait, did order you guys is hear? up. Somebody just Who? rung the bell for that's the. Right, that's right. That's right. Order the, up. <laughs> oh fuck you, Ken. Joe's <laughs> making a serious point there. We'll see. We'll see. He was really deep into it. In the I mean, I don't. I don't know, man. It's time for Ken's bell corner. <laughs> okay. All right, well, we've got our cold open. Yeah.
Everybody, welcome back to Raptin Podcast. This is episode 15 of Raptin Podcast, where we'll discuss part 15 of Twin Peaks The Return, the episode entitled There's Some Fear in Letting Go. I am J.R. Parker. I've just folded space from X. Many machines on X. New machines. Also with us this week are uh, we have uh, T. Kyle King. How are you doing, Kyle? Uh, I'm doing well, but I want to be very clear from the outset. I'm not going to talk about Judy. I'm not going to talk about Judy at all. Well, well that's a relief. Um, Jeff Fallis is with us. How are you doing, Jeff? I'm doing okay. I uh, accidentally stared at the sun during the solar eclipse on Monday, and then afterwards all I could see was globules and kind of orbs floating around for a bit. Uh, but I went to the roadhouse and I danced as easy top and after a while my vision was restored. So I'm, I'm doing much better. Thanks for asking. That's great. And, uh, episode 15 marks, uh, Ken Walzak, the return, uh, to the regular Raptin podcast broadcast. We're, we're, wel- we're, we're happy to welcome you back, Ken. And what wisdom do you have to share with us uh, now that you're recording live with your wrapped in podcast brothers and colleagues? Wow. Uh, well, I suppose I have the wisdom of the stars and the wisdom of all of the purple space that I visited and all of the bell-shaped creatures that I encountered in my journeys. Uh, I'm a little worried that I sound a bit raspy today, uh, but it may just be a frog bug in my throat. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any proof that you are yourself and you're not, in fact, a French tulpa of yourself? Yes. Good. Uh, okay. What what proof is that? I'm not at liberty to discuss it now. <laughs> well, if, if I don't know if you can't if you can't demonstrate for us that you are not a tulpa, 
Uh, We're not going to talk about Tulpas at all. Right. Not at all. (laughs) I think you'll enjoy Tulpa, Ken. I'm a lot better than the usual Ken on this podcast. What was the purpose for which you were manufactured? Well, we'll get there, won't we? (laughs) Okay. So we'll start out this episode with Nadine Hurley is marching down the road. She's on the shoulder. She's carrying Dr. Amp's golden shovel over her right shoulder. We see some street signs. I noticed one that said uh, 21 zero tolerance. I assume referring to, you know, drinking age. And she finally reaches Big Ed at his gas farm where he is. She's there to proclaim to Ed that he is free, that he can go and love Norma as he's always wanted to uh, because she recognized she being Nadine has recognized that uh, Ed has always loved Norma and Norma has always loved Ed and that she has been at fault for guilting Ed into staying with her. And Ed was so good that he stayed, but now he's going to be able to be free because Nadine has let him go. Uh, and of course, Ed says that she's just going to change her mind the next day. But Nadine says, no, I walked all the way over here and I could have turned back and I could have changed my mind, but I thought about it the whole way. And this is what I really want. We're all really happy to see Ed get some happiness, given how despondent he was at the end of, I believe it was episode 13. Yeah, surely I'm not the only person who thinks this entire idea was implanted in Nadine's highly susceptible brain by Dr. Amp when they met outside of Run Silent, Run Drapes. JR, I noticed the same sign you did, and the word zero is prominently displayed, and I think that's to indicate that this idea is 100% coming from Dr. Jacoby and 0% uh, coming from Nadine. And, and also, I know we've got some weird legal theories floating around in this series, but Surely in Twin Peaks, you have to actually go file something at the courthouse to be divorced. It's not like uh, Michael Scott declaring bankruptcy on the office. You can't just go out and say, Ed, you're free, and now all of a sudden they're not married anymore. And I say I've brought matters to a screeching halt once again. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I kind of expected Jeff to jump in there since he, yeah. he had Okay, I'll, so. I'll jump in. Yeah, I mean, I, was, I, I wasn't sure if you were implying, Kyle, that uh, – you know, Jacoby was was you're implying he's violating his professional ethics here. Well, I don't in implanting this idea. I, I don't know that he has a profession anymore, so I don't suppose that he right. could violate professional ethics. But you know, he does. He's a, he does he's have a podcaster. A, yeah, and and he has that's right, and he does have <laughs> the code of podcaster ethics. Right. Oh but no. He, but he does, right, exactly. But he does have a history of uh, of taking advantage of his position uh, with female patients, although at least in the past he picked ones that were, you know, better looking than Nadine Hurley. Ow. I, I don't know. Ouch. I, I didn't think – I did not think he was violating whatever his profession is. I, I, I saw this I, – I believe I've come around to the uh, the platonic relationship, you know, kind of theory between – Jacoby and Nadine. I just think they're kind of very strange characters who are on the same wavelength and are, are sympathetic with each other. I don't think they'll get together romantically. Um, if they do, I think it will be outside the confines of this season. And I, I'm not sure we'll see Nadine again. I think this might have been her last appearance, and that might have been the last Dr. Amp appearance, too. 
Yeah, I think. Although this you is, never know. Yeah, I think this is just a tidy little bow being tied on the forever and ever storyline of the doomed romance between Big Ed and Norma and Nadine being in the way. I think it's great. It's it's a little odd to me that there's this moment now, Kyle, which is like unequivocally happy, or will be in just a moment, unequivocally happy, and you think that there's something more sinister afoot. I'm trying to bask in some actual Robins here, and uh, and you actually think that there's more to this, which is sort of fascinating fascinating because you're usually the one you know taking the side that there are robins and there's happiness and joy in the show and i'm usually the one saying no it's all so morose and terrible well well, no and i will do that with literally every other scene and i I just (laughs) i wish that connor was here with us tonight because i I have no doubt that he's a believer in the jacoby nadine romance because i'm pretty sure he's a jacobine shipper (laughs) jesus man well, I'm going to have to reference Battlestar Galactica and say, all this has happened before and all this will happen again. And this sp- speech by Nadine is very similar to the speech that she gave when she thought she was in high school, uh, telling Ed that, that he could go steady with Norma uh, because, you know, she had found somebody else, uh, Mike, right? Right. Mike Nelson. Bobby yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Mike, yeah. hilariously, so, yes. So, so, so but- I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I, I, it, that, that, I was kind of on the fence as to whether or not – this is about a, a budding romance between Nadine and Dr. Jacoby, but I think that's but probably it. Uh, think given how the much simul- has changed. So much has changed, but so much is, is the same. She has perfected the art of silent drape writing, her life's goal, and she has shuffled herself out of the shit with a golden shovel, you know? Yeah, and I'll lay money down on the table that this is the last time we're going to see these characters. I think, I think we're done. Look, we only have three hours left, people. There's not room for everything. Oh yeah, no, I, I don't doubt that you're right that we're not going to see him anymore. I just, I just, Nadine making up her own mind about something is just not something I'm prepared to believe in. No, that's fair. Uh, and of course, this leads to the next scene in the Double R Diner, uh, where Big Ed has arrived. He's very excited when he comes into the diner. He's waving at Norma. Coincidentally, Otis Redding's version of "I've been loving you too long to stop now" is on the jukebox. But Ed is prepared to get dashed uh, on on the rocks of despair when Norma sort of shoos him away because what's his name? Walter. Walter is there and he's given her flowers. So Ed sits down at the counter and asks Shelly for some coffee and a cyanide tablet. Uh, however, uh, what what's actually going on is that Norma has decided that she's going to tell – uh, Walter uh, to buy her out that she's going to exercise her right to keep her restaurant and sell the rest off to whatever, you know, hideous conglomeration Walter represents. Uh, so this is, this is really good news. And Walter is extremely disappointed. He kind of gets up and leaves in a huff. Ed sits there at the counter. And then we see Norma's hand rest on his shoulder uh, starts rubbing it and they are reconciled. Uh, he asks her to marry him. She says, yes, they kiss. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a happy scene. I know Kyle has some stuff on colors. I just want to point out a guy in the background. There's a, a wonderful background player behind Walter who's just digging into a slice of pie with with extreme gusto. So kudos to that guy for making the most out of his background player stint here. 
Yeah, I love. I mean, I thought this was just a wonderfully constructed scene on Lynch's part, especially with the uh, uh, you know the the sound design. And I didn't see the Otis Redding song, which uh, the best I could tell, I believe it's uh, the live version of "I've Been Loving You Too Long to Stop Now" from Otis Redding's famous appearance uh, in front of what he called the Love Crowd at the Monterey Pop Festival in June 1967, which really broadened his popular appeal, helped make him a superstar. I read this as just kind of being not on the double R jukebox per se, especially how it cut cutting in and out, but it, it was kind of, uh, you know, non-diegetic music. It's just, it's, it's, it's what's going on in, in Ed, uh, as he experiences this. Um, but yeah, it was a, a, a great scene, great choice of music. I love the kind of cutting out in and out of, uh, things. And I also was convinced that, uh, there's one moment where, you know, after Ed's spirits have been crushed and after he's asked for coffee and a cyanide tablet, you see him with his eyes closed, uh, and I'm absolutely convinced that uh, he was practicing transcendental meditation, uh, and David Lynch instructed him on how to do that in this scene, and he might have been visualizing uh, the positive outcome of his scenario, and uh, that's 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 how that, that happened. Yeah, I had the same thought about him sitting there meditating, and they've even given him a haircut that's a little bit more like a, a Zen monk. Like they've got him really shaved on the sides uh, for updated 2017 Big Ed. So uh, it really gave me that that impression of meditation as well. It's great, uh, and I'm with you on the music being in Big Ed's head, Jeff. It's it's cool to talk about this from the lens of subjectivity because I think you and I are going to want to talk about that with regard to the lodges a little bit later too. Yeah, Ken, as you noted, uh, th- there is a lot of uh, the traditional red, yellow, green color scheme in both of the establishing shots of Nadine walking to the gas farm and then uh, Ed pulling up in his yellow truck outside the double R. Interestingly, you can see the pole and the arm where the traffic signal would be, but you don't actually see the traffic signal itself. And I think that uh, indicates that we're going to get some mixed signals in this scene. You know, Norma initially appears to be uh, sending Ed the signal to stop. Uh, instead, she's telling him to proceed with caution. This is still Twin Peaks, after all, where a yellow light still means slow down instead of speed up. And then she later clearly gives him the signal to go. And you mentioned, Jr. the hand uh, coming over his shoulder, and it's her left hand, and it, it moves on slowly. So first you see that... A, there's no wedding ring on her uh, on her finger, and then B, you see her watch, her wristwatch, come into view as the lyrics are talking about you know all the time that these two people have been in love with one another without them actually being able to be together, and I, it's just it's just a really beautifully constructed scene uh, that I think people have been wanting to see for you know 25 years now. Yeah. And I love the cutaway at the end, you know, to the blue skies and the clouds, yeah. you know, as kind of the extended vamp of the end of the song goes on. And it's, it's, um, you know, as if, uh, all of the world around Twin Peaks and natural world is also sharing in, uh, uh, Norma and Big Ed's joy. So yeah, it was a, a great, uh, joyful scene. Uh, and we, we can talk about how joyful some of the rest of the episode is, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i loved it though these actors really killed it and i love the reaction shot from from Midgen, from shelly in the background she's just like like really into their happy kiss at the end she has this smirk that's just sort of like damn and it's great it's great filled me with glee well we go from this happy scene to power lines the same scene of power lines that the fireman showed Andy, when he visited what we believe is probably the White Lodge, 
Um, I, I think this represents Black Lodge entities moving. We hear the same scratching noise uh, that we heard at the beginning of the very beginning of the return in episode one, where the entity we now know as a fireman said that it is in our house now coming from the record player. Uh, and of course, what is actually going on is bad coop is driving down the road and he finally arrives at a building conveniently labeled uh, convenience store. This is the same location that we saw in episode eight, the same location that appeared in visions uh, in the white lodge to the firemen in episode eight as well as to Andy in the previous episode. And we see in front of the convenience store, a woodsman. Uh, So, I mean, very clearly it appears that woodsmen serve as, I don't know, Black Lodge goons, um, minions or something, uh, because he, the woodsman is there and he proceeds to go up the stairs on the side of the convenience store um, with Mr. C., and as they come up the the fi- sort of fire escape stairs, there's no second floor to the building. Uh, they they blink out of existence, and I know there's a lot for people to talk about in in terms of this particular the beginning of this scene. Uh, so I'll let let you guys talk before we move on with the recap. Yeah, I was just uh, you know very interested about just the physical geography of where we were, you know, the last time we had seen the convenience store is what I assumed to be, you know, near white sands, New Mexico in either 1945 or 1956, maybe both instances. I wasn't, I I didn't have a chance to rewatch episode eight. Uh, But here, you know, I assumed that we are somewhere between Western Montana and, and the last place that we had seen, uh, Coop, bad coop at the farm, uh, maybe near Twin Peaks. Uh, but yeah, and you know, it seems like he sort of knows where he's going. But as you said, the woodsman steps out uh, and uh, you know guides him uh, into the location. So I think the you know the physical location of this place changes. And then I was, you know, we I remember you know we had said uh, about the convenience store itself. You know, Mike had said. We lived among the people. I think you say, you know, convenience store. And then, uh, Philip Jeffries, who is about to make a reappearance, you know, had said that he had went to one of their meetings above the convenience store. And so, uh, it was interesting to see these stairs that go to nowhere on the side of the convenience store. And then, uh, there's no actual room, you know, in the same way that, uh, Doppel Cooper had, uh, told Ray that, uh, the Dutchman's wasn't a real place, you know, but they kind of go up these stairs to nowhere and then, you know, flicker uh, into another, another realm, another plane. Yeah. And uh, we talked about that in episode eight, actually, we identified the stairs going up on the side of the convenience store. And I got very excited because I remembered, of course, um, above the convenience store being the location for the meetings. But um, somebody, maybe, maybe Adrian, when I first watched eight pointed out, but those stairs can't go to anywhere. There is no second floor above the convenience store. And I just thought, ah, details or whatever. Now we see, of course. Yeah. So as he blinks out of existence with the woodsman, we see, and this is repeated as Mr. C travels through various parts of this place above the convenience store, trees, a forest, um, an overlay of forest that seems to be part of every sort of liminal space through which uh, Mr. C and the woodsman are traveling once they go up to the top of the convenience store. And in fact, the convenience store we'll see at the end of the scene 
blinks out of sort of fades out of existence into the middle of a forest. And of course, I can't stop thinking about, you know, that, that, that there's something evil in these woods, uh, that there, there is definitely a connection between the Black Lodge and the evil in the woods. Uh, maybe going back to the owls who are referenced in the access guide, uh, maybe, maybe going back even further than that, but the, <clears throat> for whatever reason, it seems like the Black Lodge is, may travel by electricity, but is grounded in some basic level, uh, with the woods, with a forest. Uh, anyway, uh, they come into this space and it's the same space we've seen before with this floral wallpaper, uh, the same floral wallpaper that we saw, uh, where, uh, at the top of the stairs when Gordon, uh, saw the vision, uh, through the portal that he did in Buckhorn and the same floral pattern, uh, in the room depicted in the painting that Miss Tremont gave Laura and Firewalk with me. Coop tells a woodsman, uh, that he's looking for Phillips Jeffries. Uh, meanwhile, the whole time this is playing, the threnody for the victims of Hiroshima, which figured very heavily in episode eight, is is playing as uh, Coop enters this place above the convenience store in this scene. Um, there's a woodsman who is sitting next to a device uh, that is the, the person that Mr. C is talking to when he says he's looking for Philip Jeffries. He, he, he pulls some sort of latch or turns a crank uh, and there's this a big flash electrical suit uh, flash or, or, or light it looks like there are three large vacuum tubes on the device uh, that are lighting up lots of loud electricity noises and what do you know it's the jumping man and so I'm gonna turn it over to Jeff I mean for for People like me who have been obsessing over the flashes of the scene of the meeting above the convenience store for 25 years, the reappearance of the jumping man is, is big news uh, indeed. And I was so excited by that. And, 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 you know, for me, it was just, I remember watching that scene when I was a teenager and looking at everything in there being like, who is that? And then the, the fact that the woodsman, these esoteric things and the jumping man from this scene, you know, uh, have been so central to this season. It's amazing. Uh, and I was very excited by the appearance of the, of the jumping man. Uh, but uh, I wasn't able to see this on my first viewing, but as many people started pointing out uh, uh, on Monday, it appears that Sarah Palmer's face is juxtaposed over the jumping man's face as this apparatus gets cranked up in this kind of moment. If, if you've seen the still image, it's incredibly disturbing. This almost subliminal flash of Sarah Palmer's face over the jumping man's um, and, uh, I also saw that when the woodsman cranked up his, his little apparatus here, you can see a turntable and a stylus when it's illuminated. Um, and so Sarah's face plus that turntable, and we know Bob, uh, liked the turntable, um, uh, as we saw in, uh, you know, the scene where he and, Le you know, he and Leland, I guess, murdered, uh, Maddie Ferguson. Right. Um, it made me wonder if the Palmer house has some sort of lodge, lodge portal hidden within it somewhere. Um, and uh, I also theorized that the turntable on the woodsman's device was stolen from the radio station in New Mexico in episode eight and salvaged uh, for this device. But I can, we might have a talk about this more later, but I was, you know, this does kind of expand, you know, I guess uh, our knowledge of how these different areas work. And I, 
you know, some part of me just wants to be like, oh, this is the Black Lodge, but I, I really don't think it is. I feel like the convenience store is sort of a, you know, a way station, you know, of, of sorts between worlds, perhaps like the Red Room or the Waiting Room, although that seems more connected to the Black Lodge, I guess, to me. And I, I felt that, you know, uh, Doppel Cooper did say that he was worried about getting sucked into the Black Lodge. I think that's the only time the Black Lodge itself has been explicitly mentioned this season. But he doesn't seem afraid to go into this place, you know, and he specifically knows he's looking for Jeffries and he has to tell this woodsman uh, where he wants to go and, and action has to be performed. And he kind of has this stick, you know, I was calling it a shaman stick. And so he has to kind of shake that in a certain way. And then he's taken to a certain location. So I thought that was, I I, I think that the um, geography or metaphysical geography of these places might be more complicated and blurry and ambiguous than uh, we might like to make them out to be. So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe we should have that conversation now, more or less. Uh, the thing that we've been referring to is our conversation in the doc getting ready for this, that I've always imagined the lodges as places that are entirely subjective, that different people would see them differently. So when Laura Palmer would enter the White Lodge, she would see a different room than Dale Cooper would or whatever. Uh, what's thrown me for a loop a little bit in this season is that we get these mystical spaces where there are things shaped like bells and projectors and grand theater atria and stuff like that, where there are no kind of point of view characters present. It's just like, you know, Lynch is documenting what is happening in sort of the White Lodge as a spirit is created or as they're watching footage of the um, experiment and during Bob's creation and stuff like that. So that that kind of got me to rethinking the notion that I've had, I guess, in the back of my mind all along and thinking maybe Lynch and Frost want us to believe that these spaces would look like this to anybody who enters them. But I guess I just assumed the convenience store looked to Cooper like it would look only to Cooper and and not to anyone else. And I agree, it's, this isn't necessarily the Black Lodge. This is a different space, a way station kind of a place. Yeah, I, to me, it it uh, this scene really confirms, uh, to paraphrase Jack Donaghy, that you should never go with a woodsman to a second location. Uh, and, and Jeff, you, you've got an interesting idea that honestly hadn't occurred to me when watching it, but it makes sense that that this is mobile. And and of course, we've got this connection between the spirit world and the woods. I mean, as Jr. pointed out, you got the trees. Every time you transition from one place to another, the trees come into it. And again, that that's a long-standing motif or idea in the series. You, you, Margaret Lannerman's log talks to her. Josie's trapped in the drawer knob. We we've seen in both the uh, original series and now in the return uh, all these connections between sycamores and and portals to other dimensions. Uh, so so it's it's something that's always been there to some extent. And then we had. Hulk with his map, you know, talking about fire and the modern analog to fire being electricity. You know, you see the crackling along the electrical lines as he's driving. And then all of a sudden, uh, the convenience store appears. You know, maybe that's how it's traveling. You know, maybe if electricity is the modern fire and that's what's bringing it from place to place and transitioning it to wherever it happens to want to go. Maybe fire walk with me is a little bit more literal than we think that they're actually using this electricity to travel and move the convenience store from place to place. And then it fades away again uh, when it's, when it's no longer needed there. 
Yeah, Kyle, I think it's no coincidence that the type of electricity we always see in the mystical context of Twin Peaks The Return is the type that seems like it was running through wires and cords in like uh, the dawn of electricity, right? Every right. electrical sure. machine seems like it could shock you, right? It all yeah. seems extremely dangerous. And like the electricity could set the carpeting or the wallpaper or the room on fire at any right. moment. Like that right. cr- hand-cranked vacuum tubey machine that the, the woodsman is using, right? I think the connection between fire and electricity is much more direct in the type of electricity Lynch is showing us here than we're used to thinking about with our grounded plugs and very safe machines. And, um, standards the federal regulators set yeah yeah it's very interesting with what comes later with with one of those you know federally approved uh sockets and and somebody <laughs> right. being able to get into one when they need to you know right i was thinking that same thing yeah well <clears throat> the woodsman who had been operating the machine has a, a stick or staff which he uh bangs against the floor a second woodsman then leads coop into it through another room and to a dark passage and again we get this image of trees uh, that I mentioned before, sounds that may be the sounds of creaking wood. Um, it, it seems to be either black and white or very, very washed out. Then you're there in a barren room at the bottom of the flight of stairs. And then at the top of the stairs, at the other end of the room, uh, is a courtyard. Uh, and it's like the courtyard of a motel where steam is visible in the background and its origin is unclear. And something that I wanted to point out that that actually in a private conversation I had with Connor Kilpatrick, he noted that the way this whole scene is shot, uh, it is exactly like, at least for him, and I would agree, I feel the same way. This is what a nightmare is like. Uh, This this disjointed, dissociative, washed out with a vague sense of anxiety and unease about everything that only increases and gets weirder when Coop has his conversation with what appears to be Jeffries that we'll talk about in a minute. It's not some, you know, Baroque, you know, Dante's Inferno notion of a nightmare, uh, but there's a certain banality uh, to the way, or, or at least, you know, everyday nature to this, but it's just uncanny and weird and unsettling in a way that to me very matches matches up very closely to you know how I would experience the average nightmare, um, and I don't know that that means it's that it's it's subjective or objective or, or what, but it it means that David Lynch is a fucking great director, right? Right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and and again, we've talked about that several times that he that's that's sort of what he's going for. I mean, he's he's not looking for it to be literally concretely definable. I mean, he, he's trying to get at something, you know, underneath that kind of makes the hair on the back of your neck stand up. Uh, and and, and exactly. here, there are these, uh, uh, helpfully on Twitter, uh, a couple of guys, or uh, gals, I'm not sure, uh, but Ghostwood Design and Smear Attack uh, identified that this motel is is the Mount Sy Motel in North Bend, Washington. And they, got, they went and pulled up an image on Google Maps to show uh, this is the same hotel that we saw, uh, the motel, right? in Firewalk with Me, where you know we had Teresa Banks's room, and they've pretty well mapped out where uh, Doppel Cooper goes, where the woman approaches him, where the camera angles are set, and where Philip Jeffrey's room is in relation to Teresa Banks's room, which is which is really cool. Now I agree with Jeff that we're not literally at that 
motel. We've moved into, you know, some some doppelganger motel territory here. But it, it is cool that it does have that very clear connection to Firewalk with me. Yeah. And I, I agree with you, JR, that, yeah, I, I thought I felt this felt very similar to actual nightmares I've had. It set sense of walking, being accompanied by someone you don't know, going to some location you feel like you have to go to, but you don't really want to go there. And um, I think one of the other things that makes it, you know, uncanny, you know, I believe, you know, Freud's definition of uncanny or the Unheimlich is something like making the everyday, you know, feel strange, you know, or, or, or un, un, unsettling in some way. And it's just, it's about the everyday. And I think one of the things that makes this sequence uncanny, you know, if you know Twin Peaks, as Kyle just pointed out, you know, this, we've been to this location before, right. uh, but we've seen it from another angle. We've seen it at night. I mean, at daytime in the real world. And I think it's the, the blue diamond motel. Right. And it's where, uh, you know, Leland's going to meet up with Teresa Banks and meet up with a, a third girl or, or something. And it turns out to be Laura. Right. And then he chickens out and, you know, pays Teresa Banks, who I believe is wearing the owl ring. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah. you know, walks away. And then I think when he walks away, you see, you know, the, the boy with the mask that's similar to the jumping man's mask walk out, you know, of the, the motel. So it's like we've, you know, we're seeing this like, reversed or inverted, you know, kind of nightmare, you know, version of a space that we've been to uh, before in a different context. And I think that um, adds to the uncanniness. Yeah. And I, I was wondering, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, if a physical space is associated with some way or has traffic, traffic with the, the lodges or these metaphysical spaces somehow, you know, is a double of it created, you know, and sort of uh, inlaid into that world, you know, somehow, but yeah, it was a, a really uh, creepy and, as you said, masterfully directed uh, sequence. I have an objection and a question. Uh, the objection is I, I appreciate the discussion of the Unheimlich, but I, I would like to reserve uses of the adjective uncanny for Ken's X-Men corner in future. <laughs> um, and, uh, All right. Thank you, Chris uh, Claremont. Exactly. Uh, and my, uh, please listen to my mini podcast. It's good. Uh, so my, uh, question though is the person, the caretaker who I was calling like Black Lodge Carl Rod, the woman right. in the house coat, is she the woman who's credited as bosomy woman? Yes. Is that she is. Bosomy woman? Yes. I believe yes. so. Yeah. And she'll, she'll reappear at the very end of the yes, episode. Yes, she does. How, yeah. How would you know that she's bosomy? She's wearing a robe and a house coat. Yeah, that seems strange to me too. That was not not the take that I got off of seeing this character. Backwards talking creepy woman would have been how I would have credited her. I I, I actually thought that it that uh, that this character's gender identity could be uh, fluid. Yes. Um, yeah. And uh, in, in as much as I thought that it that uh, it, it had, she had a the character had a pretty masculine looking face but i actually did notice that that there was uh that she was bosomy in her own bizarre way uh but anyway we hadn't quite gotten there in the in the recap but yes mr c walks towards the number 8 door in the motel and he tries to open it himself and he it, it won't open he's kind of confused that's when bosomy woman appears and in reverse black lodge speak says i'll unlock the door for you and she does. Mr. C goes in and we see, uh, you know, another thing that, that Connor pointed out to me is that, and I had the same thought on the scene, is that David Lynch definitely has a thing for uh, bizarre, otherworldly, mutant-like creatures who speak uh, in a distorted manner from large metal devices. And, of course, 
we're referring here to the scene at the beginning of Dune, uh, where the Padishah Emperor uh, just talks to the uh, Stage Three Guild Navigator uh, in in a large uh, device with lots of of mechanical noises and steam involved. <laughs> Your journey. Many machines on X. New machines. Oh? Yes. Better than those on riches. You are transparent. I see many things. I see plans within plans. It's a really amazing scene from Dune, and I, I can't get away from it when I watched this exchange between Mr. C and what appears to be Philip Jeffries. Well, and Jr. Even even before we get to to the you know Dune Eraserhead steampunk stuff, we get another uh, common David Lynch motif, and that is flickering fluorescent lights when he comes in there. Which exactly. Of course, you you exactly. think back to the pilot with you know when when Truman finally just gets fed up and is like, all right, I, I need you to explain some stuff to me here, Cooper. I'm not following you at all. And he says, Sheriff, we got a lot to talk about. And, and in fact, we now see Kyle McLaughlin walking in there, and sure enough, he and Philip Jeffries have a lot to talk about. Exactly. That, that, that's exactly right. And, um, so, we, but it, we get kind of the opposite of uh, any kind of exposition here in, in this exchange where, um, you know, the bell, it's this bell like device and it looks like the bell that's at the top of the space box, uh, where Nido released, you know, whatever she did when she pulled that crank and then fell off into the infinite void until she landed in Twin Peaks, um, n- naked and uncovered as you guys were concerned about uh, as well as the, as the bell device that, that seemed to uh, set off some kind of alarm upon the detonation of the uh, Trinity Trinity project, uh, nuclear bomb in New Mexico in episode eight. Uh, this metal device has, you know, sub, uh, a kind of pipe that, that comes out of it almost like, what is it like? A, is it called a, a needle nose kettle, yeah. or or a tea kettle, whatever? And and it, it, like the tea, like the, the the spout of a tea kettle with steam coming out of it, and a, and a sort of what appears to be a glowing orb, but it, it's an effect created by a light that's shot uh, that, that creates a circle just outside of where the tea kettle like spot is, and it shows this uh, steam swirling about. As uh, Mr. C starts talking to uh, a David Bowie impersonator who's uh, played by Nathan Frizzell here. Uh, and the exchange goes like this. You know, the bell thing says, oh, it's you. And Co- Coop says, Jeffries. And Jeffrey says, thank God. And Coop says, why did you send Ray to kill me? And uh, Jeffries responds, what? Uh, with this uh, really bad uh, southern accent. 
Um, I think Ken noted it. It's imagine they got Aiden Gillen to do David Bowie as one of the designing women. <laughs> I stand by that assessment, <laughs> which is awesome. That's beautiful. Uh, I thought he was. Very, I, I mean, you know, Bowie's version of you know of a Southern accent was already kind of bad and exaggerated. I thought oh, it was guy, terrible. Uh, it was, I thought it was, this guy was, did a, a great was, job of of capturing uh, that. No, accent. it's true. I mean, David Bowie's version of a, of a Southern accent in Firewalk with Me was ridiculous. Yes, uh, but it was totally fine because it was David Bowie. That's exactly right. it. That's precisely <laughs> correct. Like Nathan Frizzell, you may be a great guy, but you, sir, are no David Bowie. Right. And can Thank we just, you. I called Ray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so, and then Coop says, so you did send them. Uh, did you call me five decades? I don't have your number. <laughs> Whatever. It was just ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and Kyle has noted that this is not exactly a denial. Yeah. That as to whether or not he called him. Uh, he just says, you know, it, 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 it appears that Mr. C takes it as a denial. Yeah. Because he he responds, so it was someone else who called me, and it's weird because it's 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 this is almost like a space ghost conversation, where one person on the other side of the conversation is has no idea what the other person is saying. Right. Um. I don't know. I don't know if you guys know this, but like the the way that they would record the show, space ghost, is that they would ask the guest a bunch of questions, uh, and the the guest would try to respond to them, and usually those questions are totally unrelated to what the animated space ghost ends up asking the guest in the show. Uh, and here, you know, Jeffries and Mr. C seem to have a similar kind of divide of understanding because, you know, Mr. C says, so it was someone else who used to call me. And Jeffrey says, we used to talk. Well, that's, that's totally non-responsive. I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Why would you, you, you reminisce about the fact that we used to talk uh, when, you know, Mr. C is trying to figure out, you know, who called him five days ago. Anyway, Mr. C says, yes, we did. And then there's a flashback to 1989. Uh, Philip Jeffries in the vision that we saw in Firewalk with me saying, we are not going to talk about Judy. Um, and so Coop wants Jeffries to let him know who choose Judy. And at that point, Jeffrey says, so you are Cooper. And I got at this point a, a quest, you know, maybe Jeffries is wondering if this is the doppelganger Cooper or the actual Cooper. Uh, Jeffries may may not know about the current status of Dougie or, you know, may sus- suspect that, um, that, that Coop is, is a, a known entity running around in the world. And maybe he is in this time frame. We don't really know, but that's what I got out of Jeffrey saying. So you are Cooper. And then Coop, Mr. C says, Philip, why didn't you want to talk about Judy? And, uh, Jeffrey says, why don't you ask Judy yourself? Let me write it down for you. And now numbers start appearing in the steam coming off from the uh, kettle spout part of the large bell-like device where Jeffrey's contained. Um, I think those numbers are what, four, eight, nine, five, five, one. And it, basically, we'll just, long story short, these are the same numbers uh, that are the coordinates on Ruth's arm, which right. Diane determined to be Twin Peaks. So it looks like uh, Jeffrey's is telling Mr. C to go ask Judy why Jeffries doesn't want to talk about her in Twin Peaks. Yep. We think it's 480551. I think I mistranscribed the nine, zero as a nine, but yeah, same, same point. 480551, same coordinates. All right. So Jeff, Jeffries has, has insisted that Coop has already met Judy. A phone, and it looks like the, 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 that metal bell device kind of fades out of existence. 
The phone rings. Uh, Coop yells, who is Judy? And then picks up the phone. Uh, and he's flashed into a, a phone booth, a phone booth that's outside of the front of the convenience store. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know, perhaps some of us were impressed or, or surprised when David Lynch recast uh, Maura Kelly for Donna Hayward in uh, Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, replacing Lara Flynn Boyle. Uh, he set, I think, new standards for recasting unavailable actors in Twin Peaks to return. I mean, Michael J. Anderson became the flickering brain tree. And here, David Bowie has become a gigantic steam-emitting tea kettle. So I just thought that was incredible. Uh, and I I guess this whole kind of exchange between Jeffries and, and Doppelcooper, you know, it, it, it reminded me of almost the same way that Wyndham Merle behaved and you know was kind of treated in uh the season two finale when he made his way to what might be the black lodge or the red room or whatever and he was just kind of i guess outmatched and uh i i felt like jeffrey's you know definitely did not call uh doppel cooper five days ago i think we'll find out who that was i've got some theories about who that person uh who's behind those calls who's impersonating philip jeffrey's might be um i might give those later in the episode or, or next week. But um, I don't think it was this Jeffries. And I think uh, this Jeffries just seems kind of annoyed by Doppel Cooper. And I think at the end, um, you know, might be giving him a mixture of accurate information, misinformation, but I feel like the phone call was his way of just summarily dismissing Doppel Cooper and getting him out of the uh, equation. So yeah, that was, I don't know. That's uh, a few thoughts I had about this scene. Yeah, and Jeff, I, I was, I'm like you, I was completely caught off guard by the replacement of David Bowie with, with this machine, this tea kettle, what I think of in my head as the Bowie Bowie, uh, because I, I was totally convinced that he'd been recast as a small black box in Argentina. So I completely misread which type of inanimate object yeah. he'd been recast as. Uh, to me, what, yeah, I agree with you, JR. They're, they're talking past each other. Uh, Jeffries is just kind of having old home week with his, with his buddy Coop there, uh, and, and isn't addressing any of his questions. He's not really truly denying much of anything, but he's not telling him anything either. Either. And and the part about you know he seems unclear whether this is really Cooper. Uh, so when he talks about you know Judy uh, being someone that he's that he's met, I'm not sure is that is that Doppel Cooper in this form is that full original recipe Dale Cooper. I mean I'm pretty sure it's not Dougie Coop. It's not your separate good Coop. Uh, and, and I'm inclined to th- believe the theory that Judy is in fact Major Briggs and that this is just one of David Lynch's many Wizard of Oz references. You know, we see later on where he's pulling names of characters from famous movies. Uh, and, and here it's, you know, Judy Garland. Uh, and, and that's where the nickname comes from. So after Coop blinks into the uh, phone booth in front of the convenience store, we find out that Richard Horn is there. Uh, anybody can just roll up to the convenience store, at least if he is Mr. C's son. Uh, he's, he points a gun at Coop, uh, says he recognizes him as FBI from his mother's photo of Coop. He tells uh, Mr. C that his mom is Audrey Horn. Uh, Cooper spits, which is enough of a distraction for him to grab Richard's gun and knock Rich the fuck down, uh, tells Richard never to threaten him again, and then says, get in the truck, we'll talk on the way. Before he gets in the truck, Coop sends a text, Las Vegas question mark. Uh, they drive off, and as we mentioned earlier, 
the convenience store blinks gradually out of existence, replaced by trees. And I guess I was gonna, yeah, I, uh, I, I like the uh, the Judy as Garland Briggs theory. I think that's the best one. I think there is still a possibility Judy might be Nido, but I think there's more evidence to support Judy as being Garland Briggs. And again, in the same way that I was thrilled to see the reappearance of the jumping man and the importance of the woodsman. I mean, the, the as I talked about, you know, I think, uh, you know, the last episode where we saw, uh, you know, in in uh, Gordon's dream, uh, the footage from the, I mean, this is probably like the most generative, most referred to, and it's one of the most oblique and abstract, you know, like four minutes of footage Lynch has ever shot. Like every single detail at this point, including Judy, which I always thought there was something they were working around or that he would, I think it was an, it was an idea Robert Engels had for like Josie's sister originally. And then Lynch discarded that, you know, so I, that and like the importance of all these little details in, uh, the Philip Jeffrey sequence, which, you know, morphs into the convenience store sequence from Firewalk with me. I'm just amazed that, uh, these things are being picked up on and, and are becoming uh, central to uh, one of the main plot lines in, in this season. So, yeah. I, I don't know, Jeff. I, I don't think that that Robert Engel's notion of Judy as Josie's sister has been uh, fully abandoned. You think in that's fact, who Nido could be? I think it's, I think it's who Nido is. We, we know wow. that Nido is really centrally important. Yeah. Uh, no, that, that would make sense. Fair enough. She's Asian. And, uh, and, and so she very well could be Josie's sister. I mean, why the hell Josie ended up in a, you know, uh, a cabinet drawer hand knob, doorknob, uh, or handle knob, whatever you call that. Uh, I, I don't know. And, and, and that, that's fairly perplexing. But I, I think Judy is Nido just because Nido is supposed to be really important. And, you know, it, it would be strange for Judy to be Major Briggs. Uh, given that Major Briggs already has his own kind of story and entity out there, and we don't know anything about Nido. So I suspect that, that she's going to end up being Judy, but I could be wrong. So Judy's either Garland Briggs or Nido. Uh, who do you guys think then is uh, the Jeffries who made the phone call to Doppel Cooper five days ago? Thoughts on that? I, I'm not convinced it's not Jeffries, but I, I tend to think you're right that it's one of the guys in the White Lodge, either Mike or the fireman, who seems to be a lot more active lately. But uh, the thing, the thing that bugs me about Nido as Judy, all of that, all of that makes perfect sense. But you know, Doppel Cooper, so far as we know, hasn't met Nido. I mean, the Good Dale has, but that was after they were separated, after well after Doppel Cooper was out of the lodge and, and set loose on the world. And, you know, Jeffries is evasive in these answers here. And so I, I don't think he's being coy when he says ba- Bad Coop uh, has met uh, has met Judy uh, if it's just going to be retconned away down the road like he's, you know, Ben Kenobi explaining after the fact that, uh, uh, you know, yeah, okay, I said that uh, Darth Vader killed your father, but I really meant that he became your father. You know, that, that that's just nonsense and just shows that Lucas was making it up as he was going along. And I, I don't think Jeffries is doing that. Hey, I say that as a guy who in 1977 saw Star Wars before it had all that Episode Four crap that was added in the re-release. So I, I use that advisedly. But yeah, I mean, we know that Doppel Cooper himself as Doppel Cooper met Major Briggs, because it's the climax of the secret history of Twin Peaks, uh, and and it set into motion all the actions Briggs took that led to everybody 
finding Nido near Jackrabbit's palace. So I just I'll be very disappointed if it's Nido and we get this, you know, backfill explanation of something that we haven't seen happen yet. Yeah, the Nido interpretation is odd to me and and an imperfect fit. I I sympathize with JR's point though that we have a whole other major Briggs storyline. I mean, the Judy Garland Garland Briggs thing is great. It's it's so close it's almost cockney rhyming slang or something, right? So that, it makes perfect sense, but I I I'm with JR that why would we have the whole body of one person, head of another Garland Briggs storyline if uh if we were going to do this other thing with him. So I don't know. Well, Kyle, the analogy you just made actually gives me occasion to bring up a theory that I've been developing and kind of nurturing for a while. Uh-oh. Um, and it really, a lot of it builds off on some of the stuff that uh, Jeff has pointed out in the past about the character of Cooper uh, being inherently flawed uh, and needing to, having gone to the Black Lodge uh, and having shown fear, a fear that was founded upon uh, his attachments and his relationships, uh, and, and the, the love that he had in particular for Annie, uh, but to a lesser extent with, you know, Wyndham Earl's wife and, uh, a, 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 for whatever reason, he was lacking in his ability, uh, to master uh, and have control over those attachments to the point that he didn't show fear, uh, in the Black Lodge, uh, which resulted in his, you know, his, his functional obliteration. And the appearance of, uh, this, you know, truly evil character that we call, um, Mr. C or Doppelkooker, Doppelkooper, Cooper's Doppelganger. Um, you know, we've said a lot about the works that David Lynch, uh, and Mark Frost have planned to do in the past or were, were going to do in the past and they never got made, whether it's the Lemurians or did somebody just make a fucking bagel or what? <laughs> No, I was following you intently. I was not. I, I don't know. Wait, wait, I guess wait, somebody's uh, did order you guys is hear, up. Somebody who, just rung the bell for that's the. Right, that's right. That's right. Order up. <laughs> oh fuck you, Ken. Joe's <laughs> making a serious point there. We'll see. We'll see. He was really deep into it. In the I mean, I don't. I don't know, man. It's time for Ken's bell corner. Okay. All right. Well, we've got our cold open. I th- yeah. <laughs> Ken's tulpa oh, is man. there with Philip Jeffries the bell, who's ringing to yeah. signal that the Bob Globule has been released. <laughs> right. So anyway. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go back to what I was saying before. Yes. If you if you can come reconstruct come that, Jr. I was with you. I was yeah. with you. Make the, make like that bell never rang. Okay, so I also want to talk about the notion of alchemy and magic uh, and and a particular kind of alchemy uh, called force alchemy. And force alchemy allows people uh, to change the very nature of existence and even life or death. Uh, and this particular instance of force alchemy I'm thinking about is the force alchemy that Darth Sidious used upon Anakin Skywalker uh, – to save him and turn him into Darth Vader. David Lynch had the opportunity to make uh, direct Return of the Jedi. I believe that Dale Cooper is Anakin Skywalker. 
and that Mr. C represents Darth Vader, the splitting off of all that was good in Anakin that he lost uh, and became evil because of the fact that he lost his ability to become detached and was instead consumed by fear over the possible death of his love, Padme Amidala. Uh, so anyway, I think that's the, that's the key to Twin Peaks. Uh, Coop is Anakin Skywalker. Bad Coop is Darth Vader. That's it. There's, there is some fear that's in not- letting go. <laughs> That's right. There that is, is some fear in letting go. Thought, that's not where I thought you're going with that, Jr. Are you sure when that bell rang in the middle of this, you weren't like hypnotized? Yeah, and it completely you threw you off. Yeah, I, I'm with I'm with Jeff. I think you went in a completely different direction. That that um, I think ends with all, all, with all, all of it to spite Ken. All of it to spite Ken. Okay, or Ken's tulpa. I, if I liked the theory, Jr. I, I thought it was good, Jr. It's great. It, it's great. Jr. You can, actually, I'm okay with that theory as long as midichlorians aren't introduced. That's exactly right. That's right. Yeah. We're, we're, we're going to excise midichlorians from the theory. All right, Jr. Uh, although you could imagine midichlorians being in what the experiment barfed up. Oh, sure. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I could totally imagine. There'd be like a midichlorian stew with little. Right. Bob Balls. Midichlorians are Garmin Bozia. Is that what you're saying? Right. This yeah, exactly. Is a, I totally this believe that. a great that. segue, I actually. I totally believe because, that. And, and if you... Oh, right. Or, or it, you know, the, the force is like a field, uh, say, an electrical field that surrounds all living beings. Yeah. This is great. This is a great segue okay. because Midichlorians is where I give If you're, if you're not going to cut all up. of that, which I strongly recommend you do, at least make the, <laughs> the photo for this episode. I want you to Photoshop Audrey Horn onto Princess Leia in the gold bikini. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> am, am I still muted? Okay. Or All right, that's enough ignoring? from my side, I guess. What um, just happened? What just happened? I don't, I don't know. We do know that uh, Richard Horn's mother is Audrey. Yes. Uh, and sadly, the, there's a strong suspicion that he is riding in a uh, a, a pickup truck um, with his father, which I guess we'll find that out for sure probably sometime in the next few episodes. So. Wait, am I still right. muted or am I just being ignored? No, you're, no, of course you're not muted. <laughs> yeah, we're ignored. Yeah. No, no, I'm just saying I was saying things and people were, in, were not hearing them. No, so I think I was no, muted. that okay. was, yeah, we hadn't heard you. <laughs> okay, so I'm, you're, I'm you're, unmuted your tulpa, currently. Your, your tulpa is being shunned for eating a bagel on the air. I, it's not a bagel. I was trying to make a martini. Anyway, um, this is a good segue, though, because midichlorians is where I tune out on the whole Star Wars franchise. Uh, and this Steven scene is where I tune out on this episode. So it works out perfectly. Well, the Steven scene, I didn't think it was that long. Ken thought it was really long. It's a hundred um, years long. Steven is extremely high. Sparkle, don't use it, kids. Really, it's just not a good idea. Uh, he's really high. He's there with uh, Gersten Hayward, played by Alicia Witt. Uh, all of us are disappointed that this is what we're going to get out of Alicia Witt in the, ep- in, the, in the whole series, apparently. Steven's panicking about something he did. Um, he, he's brushing off Gersten's to attempt to apparently blame Becky for what happened. He, he's, he describes himself repeatedly as a high school graduate. Um, I think the, only the first word of that phrase is true. Uh, <laughs> uh, he's as, as Kyle's noted, a GED does not count. He's, uh, he's, he's got some sort of suicide plan with his gun. Uh, he's, Talks about the nature of the afterlife, which somehow involves rhinoceroses. I mean, there, there's there's a whole taxonomy of like zoological features. Uh, 
I don't know, the zoology of what really fucking high people in Twin Peaks say, right? Because we've got rhinoceros, we've got we've got penguins, we've got zebras, we've got that nut place, so squirrels may be involved. He talks about lightning in the bottle and then turquoise. Uh, and, you know, it, Stephen is really despicable, and, I, and he starts uh, making a lot of uh, really unfortunate anatomical references uh, towards Gersten, which, you know, is actually similar to what he had to say about Becky uh, and his own, you know, weird, affectionate uh, slash objectifying language right. way, way back in what, like episode three in the car with Becky, which, you know, reminded me of Bobby in the car with Shelly. Where, you know, there were some double entendres, but there was no, like, you know, there were no four-letter words or, you know, grotesque objectification like Stephen likes to engage in. And he does that a whole lot in this scene. Yeah, so eventually there, there, there is a hiker with a, with a little dog coming through the woods uh, who's actually played by Mark Frost. And you guys, this uh, isn't just a hiker. This is right, Cyril, right. Cyril Pons. That's right. That's right. Investigative reporter. Yeah, um, who we hadn't seen since, I believe – you know, he was early in season two reporting on the Packer Bill fire. Is that right. correct? Yeah. Is that the last time we saw Cyril Pons? I, th- and- I think that's right. Yeah. When, and when Steven catches sight, Steven and uh, Gersten catch sight of this hiker, uh, Gersten freaks out and runs away. Although basically just to the other side of the tree under which uh, Steven had been sitting, uh, the, the hiker kind of, or, or Mark Frost or, or what's his name? Cyril. You know, they, he kind of runs off Cyril. Uh, and then we hear a gunshot. And we see Gersten staring into the sky. I kept wondering if we might see a little bit of, you know, yellow Gerbenbosia float into the sky. Uh, but we, that's not what we see. We see just the sky and the clouds. Well, no, because no of, one's um, sad that Stephen harsh. is dead. There's no, there's no sorrow associated <laughs> well, I mean, with his yeah, death. What, there's only what, celebration. I think, well, that's true. But I think that Stephen obviously was not well and was experiencing himself plenty of pain and sorrow um, as, as even though he's a piece of shit. Um. Anyway, yeah, that was that scene. All right, so before we go to the fat trout and continue our speculation as to what might have happened to Becky, I, I want to ask the serious question. Why did we meet Steven at all? Why is Steven in Twin Peaks The Return? Intergenerational decay. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, don't we get enough of that from the various other poor fates of people in Twin Peaks? It just seems like an awful lot of misery to put Shelley and Bobby and the viewers through, and an awful lot of squandering of Amanda Seyfried just to end this way. No, I don't think so, Ken, because what we see is we see how Becky is wrapped up into the same sort of terrible relationship uh, that Shelley, her mother, had been wrapped up into. And and then we just see how more pathetic it is, you know, on all accounts with, you know, shooting up apartment doors and and now, you know, Stephen having done whatever bad thing he did. And also it, it puts a, you know, direct human toll for the trade of sparkle, which, you know, I don't think that they introduced that concept and it's trafficking in Twin Peaks for no reason. And, you know, they could have had just some completely random character uh, die as a result of their nasty sparkle addition, addiction, but instead we have one that's you know connected by you know w- you know two degrees of association to you know main characters of the show like Shelley and Norma, and I think that's the role that Steven serves. 
Well, and it's also, we, we saw that intergenerational decay. We've also started to see some signs of intergenerational recovery. You know, when Sarah Palmer takes her face off, there's something dark and evil underneath. When her daughter, Laura Palmer, takes her face off, there's this bright, blinding white light. JR, last week, you talked about the, the juxtaposition of Dale Cooper as a young man going out in search of himself and, and discovering pure evil. And, and then last week we had, uh, uh, Freddie Sykes going out, having that same journey of self-discovery and leaping into a vortex and being given superpowers by the firemen and sent to Twin Peaks to do great things. You know, we, we know that although she's not as far gone as Stephen, certainly, Becky has has had her own uh, issues with experimentation. Maybe Stephen's death is the thing that that gets her completely out of that uh, of that life. And maybe she actually uh, comes out of something that Shelley didn't do a particularly good job of uh, of escaping from. So, I, I mean, I think we're seeing some of the younger generation actually uh, improving on the prior generation. Richard Horn, notwithstanding. Yeah. And I, I read, I don't think Becky is okay. Uh, and I thought that, um, you know, the, the dialogue was really difficult to understand in this scene. And uh, even though I watched it, you know, with, with subtitles and, and read, uh, you know, kind of some internet tra- translations, it still was, was hard to make sense of but i sort of read this as you know um becky's i think is dead in that trailer i think i think steven killed her um and yeah i mean as awful as steven was i still felt like you know just the the mood of this scene is you know really unsettling and um yeah i i the the pan up uh you know to the skies you know uh uh, from gerson's point of view where you know think as as you said in the show notes no portal appears but it was this you know kind of hopeless uh version of you know the the skies and nature not offering anything up uh you know a, a juxtaposition to the pan up to the skies that we'd seen the joyful pan up accompanied by Otis Redding music instead of sort of ominous <laughs> whooshing uh in this scene you know that, that we'd seen after Norma and Big Ed finally got together so this is just you know, we'll talk about this further, but we, we've had this incredibly tonally extreme uh, episode. Uh, you know, we had this great joy, this prolonged, uh, you know, sequence uh, in what might be the Black Lodge or some at least dark metaphysical space. And then we go straight into, you know, the three or four minutes before a suicide. So, yeah, I had a hard yeah, time I- reading it as a Robin <laughs> Kyle. Yeah, that no portal appears was my effort to sort of capture my my hope that something would sort of redeem the scene at the end. What's the what's the line from the Shakespeare sonnet like uh, trouble deaf heaven with their bootless cries, right? That's like the the Gersten perspective, right? Heaven is is distinctly deaf in that scene. But it feels like the the first uh, long the first three long scenes in this episode are like the good, the bad and the ugly, right? You get that really, really great positive happy ending robin situation with big ed and norma and then you get bad coop in a sequence that i find as nightmarish in a good way and as masterful as anything else that they've done in the show and i'm, I'm completely with you all on how great it is and then we just wallow in this awfulness in a scene where the dialogue is incomprehensible the people are unlikable and have probably done terrible things and it just goes on and on and on so um yeah, I, I get it, but I wish it weren't there. And it, it really did. I, I got the 
impression when I finished watching this that I had hated half the episode. And rewatching it, I realized I just hated that particular chunk in the middle of it. I liked every other bit of the episode, but in my mind, it was half. Yeah, see, and, and I just got a whole different vibe off of this scene. I mean, the thing that, that, that impressed itself upon me, particularly in the wide shots, is, you know, they're wearing this, uh, this red clothing, and they're in the middle of all this enveloping, benevolent green. And, and I, you know, the, to me, the sky, her looking up at the sky is, okay, it's, it's pretty bad right now, but it's getting better. I, I, I don't, and the thing with Becky being dead, I just, I, I just frankly don't get where that's coming from. The conversation they're having, to the extent that we can understand it, is a perfectly rational conversation for these two people in this situation to be having after they were hiding in the stairwell while Becky shut uh, shot up um, uh, Gersten's apartment door. You know, she's trying to blame it on Becky because Becky just shot up her door. Stephen feels awful because he's a lousy provider. He's an abusive husband, and he just basically got caught cheating on his wife. Their behavior makes perfect sense with what we know. I don't think we have to project anything onto it like, oh, my God, Becky's dead somewhere. Uh, Shelly sure seemed to be in a pretty good mood earlier in the episode uh, for her daughter to have just been shot dead. She doesn't know about it yet. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think the green in this scene, you know, it's, it's, this is a nature that they, you know, has, has not given them comfort. That's, that's, uh, not, uh, speaking to them, you know, or it, it, it's, it's the, the bad part of the woods in broad daylight. Uh, and yeah, I mean, think about Gerson Hayward. You know, we only saw one scene of her, but, uh, from wearing her, you know, fairy costume, playing the piano, being a high academic achiever to wherever she's ended up or she's with Steven, you know, and then I, she's trying to comfort him and keep him from killing himself. And she failed in that. There's no way that's going to bleed to a good outcome for her in any way. And I think if, you know, if Becky is dead, either, you know, through, through whatever means, but I guess we'll find that out for sure. I mean, that's just going to leave massive amounts of trauma in the wake for two characters. We love Shelly and Bobby. So, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, he says, I did do it, I did it, and Gersten says, "You no, you were fucking stoned, what the fuck did she give you? So maybe not, maybe maybe he's hallucinating, but still, yeah. No, I do I, think the ugliness is a I feature, Ken, of this season. Yeah, yeah, I think she a is A feature, too. not a bug? It's, it's a feature, yeah, not a frog bug? It is definitely a feature, not a frog <laughs> bug, so, yeah. Shall we move to the fat trout? Yeah, so we go to the fat trout trailer, there's not really much to say other than um, our intrepid reporter reports to Carl Rod uh, that it was the, the guy who lives in that trailer right over there and the camera show there's a shot of the broken window uh, I think the one that Steven threw the coffee mug right um, yeah that's yeah. it and then and then and uh, and that's it we go from there to the roadhouse and in the roadhouse now the pinecomb microphone has lost all meaning or significance. Yeah. Uh, because now in a in a in a b- kind of bizarre scene, uh, the the same announcer uh, announces that uh, that they're gonna boogie down to um, ZZ Top, uh, sharp stressed man, and they have this weird hand drawn meter uh, that that apparent either it registers the audience reaction or the volume of the music that they're about to play. Uh, but anyway, they play uh, sharp dressed man by ZZ Top. And that uh, vo- it goes all the way up to eleven, spinal tap it does style, yeah. all the way up to eleven. That's right. Um, so, so it's time to to smell the glove, as it were, because we've got 
Well, I don't know. Before we smell the glove, Ken, do you want to do your beverage corner? That sounds great. Thanks, JR. Okay, so sure. I want to talk about Rainier beer. Uh, Rainier is, of course, a staple of the bar community in Seattle, Washington, and uh, it was founded in 1878, and it has been also a staple of Twin Peaks. So going all the way back to Fire Walk With Me, the uh, party that happens north of the border in Canada between uh, Donna and Laura, not the real Donna, but the Fire Walk With Me Donna, and Laura happens with a bunch of skeezy Renaults and a whole bunch of bottles of, of Rainier beer. And there's a piece in theweek.com that I can link to on the page that does a nice job talking about the role of uh, the Pacific Northwest in Twin Peaks and in Fire Walk With Me. And it mentions that the last shot of that scene is a, quote, languid track through smoldering cigarettes and discarded bottles on the barroom floor. And it is a lovely shot of um, grossness, and it's a shot of Rainier bottles. So here in Twin Peaks The Return, we've seen Rainier as the beer of choice in uh, the Roadhouse, alternating with Heineken, which I find super fascinating from a Lynch perspective, because, of course, there's the famous scene we all adore in Blue <laughs> right. Velvet, in which the Hopper character says, Heineken, Fuck that shit. Pabst Blue Ribbon. And uh, Heineken is product placing itself, it would seem, right into this se- this season of Twin Peaks. And Rainier is now owned by Pabst. It's no longer brewed anywhere near Seattle to the great chagrin of everybody I know from Seattle. Everybody sort of curses the brewery being sold in 1977 and the transfer of the brewing to uh, an unaffiliated contract brewery in, uh, I think, Northern California in 1997 or so. Sorry, 1996. But um, I, I think the history of the brewery is sort of interesting. Uh, people in Tacoma think that the mountain is named for the beer and not vice versa, because people in Tacoma like to call it Mount Tacoma, and they have this conspiracy theory that the Rainier Beer Company paid to name the mountain, that they actually paid off the state legislature in free beer to get their beer name on the mountain. That is apparently not true. It's named after British Admiral Peter Rainier, who was a friend of George Vancouver in the late 18th century. But it is true that the AAA baseball team in Tacoma, the Tacoma Rainiers, is named after the beer and not the mountain, as they were purchased by the beer company. But uh, I do like the ways in which the history since the 70s of Rainier beer, which used to be known for its extremely pure Pacific Northwest water and is now known for not much at all, right, um, is sort of a story of broken corporate promises. They had promised to move the production back to Washington State last year, and it doesn't appear to have happened, and a loss of local identity and moving away from pure local sources and ingredients, all of which to me is kind of the story of intergenerational decay and the story of Norma and the double R. And so I think it's it's really perfect that this is one of the two beers of choice for uh, Twin Peaks The Return. I will mention that their slogan way back in 1907 was, as pure as the snow that crowns our mountaintop, there's new strength and vigor in in every drop. Um, so this has been a beer-focused Ken's Beverage Corner. Rainer Beer also figures heavily in a show that I've enjoyed along with, you know, a demographic that appears to be mostly like 70-year-old retired Republican men, uh, namely Longmire, which is about a sheriff in Wyoming. Oh, yeah, I uh, read about he, that. He is constantly drinking Rainier Beer. But somebody in that show pronounces it Renier, like the French way, apparently? I don't, I don't know. Maybe I didn't notice that. Anyway, uh, at, back to the roadhouse. 
uh, and the glove uh, to be smelled um, in, with reference to Spinal Tap. Uh, James Hurley and Freddie have uh, arrived, and James is just an idiot uh, because he 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 comes in and he the first thing he does is he he says, "Well, hello there," or whatever from afar, but not that far away to this woman who cries when he sings songs and is also married. And, you know, the guy is like, dude, don't ever talk to my wife again. And James is like, oh, I was just trying to be polite. I like her. <laughs> like he's like five or something. Uh, that How could I like her be something that would make sense to say? So, of course, this results in, you know, fisticuffs, uh, which results in Freddie jumping in and, you know, punching the fuck out. Uh, to both of these guys with his green fist, uh, and it's great because every time he punches, there's almost there's like this explosion sound, and the music stops. It, like, it, ca- <laughs> it causes <laughs> the the needle on the record player or the CD player to, to to skip for like you know five seconds before it can start back again. Every time he 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 punches with the green fist, it's great. Although it, apparently uh, uh, these guys do not look good, so they're gonna call nine one one. Um, and ZZ Top keeps playing afterwards. Uh, I don't really think there's a lot to cover in that scene. Uh, what do you guys think? Just move to Vegas. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, so the next scene is, is, is a short but funny scene where the FBI office apparently has been gathering up a Dougie and Janie Jones. Somehow they found out the name of, of Dougie's wife. Uh, but you know, the ones that they've got are, have got like four or five children screaming and crying, uh, waiting to be interrogated. Uh, And, you know, it's, that's, that's it. That's the scene. (laughs) The, uh, the director of the FBI or the, 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 whoever's in charge of the Las Vegas office, uh, seems pretty irritated at his underling that, uh, he's gathered together a family with a bunch of children that are screaming and crying. I believe uh, that character get Dougie. A character, I believe his name is, I believe that character is named Randall Headley, and he's played by yes. Jay Ferguson, who again is doing amazing work with very limited material, but his reading of kids, plural, kids was amazing. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we move from this scene to Duncan Todd's office, uh, where a very smartly dressed Chantel uh, arrives to kill the fuck out of Duncan Todd uh, and then uh, shoot. Uh, Roger, uh, although as Chantel is gets on the phone uh, after she initially shoots uh, Duncan Todd and Roger, but she, as she walks away, she can hear Roger uh, wheezing and quite irritatedly uh, comes back to finish the job uh, in a in a quick little scene as she uh, I think confirms to Hutch that she definitely wants French fries with ketchup. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Then we shift from there to the Twin Peaks Sheriff Before Department. Before we do that, Jr. In, in the interest of time, I haven't tried to hit on every single color-related scene, but this one I, I, I just can't let go. That okay? Color, color, color. Duncan Todd's office. There's a yellow chair on the right. There's absolutely no reason for there to be a chair in that position. There's a yellow light coming through an open door to the left. In the middle, you've got Duncan Todd, who's doomed. He's wearing a red tie, and there's this red sculpture of some sort that serves no purpose other than to just sit there and be red. So we got all our, our negativity in the midst of this. It's framed with all this sinister, sorrowful color, and the upshot of this scene is, once again, 
bad guy dies in a big burst of red. And and to me, this that this just symbolizes the the opposing forces in this episode. It's about the good guys joining forces and about the bad guys meeting their doom. Some of it's kind of grisly, but the guys who are dying are all guys we want to see die. And I'm surprised, Kyle, you didn't mention, uh, I don't think they were red shoes, but uh, Chantal's black uh, shoes, I think they're red Louboutins, and I think they got red red bottoms. So, ah, yeah, okay. Well, I, I missed that. that. I missed that. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Shall we go to the sheriff's department? Yeah, now we can Let's go. go. I'm, I'm good. I'm done. Thanks. Right. Right, so so basically, again, not a lot's happening here except that James and Freddie uh, have been booked and are now being uh, entered into cells in the Twin Peaks jail, uh, which is where Chad already is, as is Nido, and our you know, drooling, uh, bleeding um, mimic character. That's it. <laughs> uh, did you guys have any commentary on the scene? I found it interesting that Freddie was in cell eight and right. we've seen Agent Jeffries in room eight at right. whatever the, the convenience store Blue Diamond Motel was. Uh, and then, you know, I think, Kyle, you might speak to this too, but I, I did find it interesting that, you know, uh, Nido uh, and uh, Freddie, you know, who we'd seen in the last episode, have an association of sorts with the firemen uh, are showing up in the, the jail cell. So I'll be... Uh, fascinated to see who else uh, I assume will show up uh, in uh, Twin Peaks Sheriff's Department jail uh, in the next few episodes. And then also this, you know, I thought called to mind, you know, uh, the scene with, you know, where James uh, and uh, Bobby Briggs and Mike all end up uh, in the same jail uh, way back, I believe, in episode one or episode the pilot or episode one of uh, yeah. Twin Peaks. Yeah. And then, you know, it was interesting to see Bobby now as the sheriff member of the sheriff's department himself locking up uh, James here. So, yeah. Yeah. And I, Jeff, I, I think that's exactly right uh, with the cell number. And then, and then particularly, you know, the white lodge has done some serious advanced planning here. You know, the evolved arm electric brain tree has been appearing to Dougie Coop, you know, in a vision to tell him to squeeze Ike's hand off. Mike visited Bradley Mitchum in a dream and then summoned Dougie Coop to Zymons to, to fulfill the prophecy by giving him a cherry pie. And the fireman has been moving pieces into place in Twin Peaks to set the stage for this final battle. We haven't seen a lot of the firemen, but when he started doing stuff, Man, he he really went into action. I mean, he's orchestrated bringing Nido and Freddy together in the jail, which is this heavily guarded spot at the center of this earthly edifice that embodies everything that is good and right in the series, the sheriff's station. It's the most secure place that it could possibly be. And think about the level of forethought that went into this. Freddy got the signal to come to Twin Peaks six months ago. Preparing to get Frank, Bobby, Hawk, and Andy to an exact spot at an exact time on an exact date so they could rescue Nido, that was set into motion by Major Briggs 25 years ago, and the Lara Orb was sent to Earth to start all of this in 1945. So the good guys had a plan. It required patience on the part of the planners, it requires patience on the part of the players, and it requires patience on the part of the audience, but we are getting there. Unmistakably, undeniably, the good guys are getting together to win this thing. 
That was really good, Kyle. I, I want to argue with that, but that was actually very persuasively stated. That was that was very good. I think I really think that that Stephen thing overawed my whole impression of this uh, episode <laughs> to the point where it was hard for me to be rational about any of the rest of it. But uh, I, I like that notion. I think probably fewer of these things will tie together than you're predicting or than probably. maybe we would like. Uh, but But I'm okay with that, I think. Well, the next sequence is Chantal and Hutch having another Royale with cheese moment uh, (laughs) where they're literally eating burgers, uh, talking about fast food, talking about ketchup packets, uh, you know, but they really they have such a sweet relationship. They, they, They don't seem to bear any kind of ill will. I don't know if it's because, you know, of their polyamory or the, <laughs> they're just that enlightened or what, but they really seem to get along. Um, and uh, Chantal has been uh, really irritated lately that she hasn't been able to, to just torture people because killing people isn't any fun because uh, you can't torture them anymore once they're dead. Uh, and then she points out Mars in the sky. Yeah. And I had, I mean, I, w- I was just kind of made a note that uh, it's, it's, pretty messed up that Hutch and Chantal are one of the most functional loving couples in the new season. Despite the fact that they're these kind of, you know, soulless Garmin Bozia, Cheeto consuming, torturing assassins. Um, and you know, his it's, I thought that was, was fascinating. Uh, and, um, I also thought that it was interesting that, um, the red planet, uh, of the God of war Mars, uh, leads into the next scene uh, in which we see the red door of the, the home of Douglas Jones, Mars, the planet, you know, uh, governs or Mars, the God, you know, when you look at it, governs sex, sexuality, weapons, accidents, and surgery. All those things seem uh, like they're appropriate to the characters of Hutch and Chantal, as well as to Dougie Jones. So that you could perhaps use that as a, a segue uh, into the next scene, JR, unless anyone else has anything to say about this, but I thought it was a great little bit and, you know, they actually make some some decent points, uh, although perhaps morally misguided ones about American history, uh, the role of government assassins, uh, ethics and morality of murder and torture, et cetera. But, yeah, uh, it was uh, a great little scene. Well, yeah, I think that is a good transition to uh, the Jones residence where Janie E is serving Dougie chocolate cake and is, you know, really uh, happy because all their dreams have become true. Uh, Dougie repeats the last word, delicious, and the word true. As he eats, he messes with some salt and pepper shakers. Then he presses a button on the television remote, which is showing the movie Sunset Boulevard. And on the screen, he sees a character say, get Gordon Cole. And, you know, Kyle McLaughlin's acting, which has been just tremendous through all of this, is particularly good here. Because you see just across his face this recognition uh, that uh, of Gordon Cole. Uh, it's, it's, I think it's new. It's an innovation in terms of we, we really are seeing Dougie wake up. He ends up getting under the floor, crawling to an electrical socket. Uh, he at first attempts to insert the tines of his fork into the electrical socket. Then he turns it around. He takes the the blunt handle end of the fork, sticks it into the electrical socket. And, you know, we see uh, a shortage, a power shortage, uh, a loud, you know, crackling noise. And uh, Sonny Jim doesn't understand what happened. Jenny E screams. Uh, and, you know, that next week is definitely going to be exciting, huh, guys? 
I was just gonna say props to Kyle. Didn't didn't you call episode sixteen as the uh, as the return? Seems like you're lined up for a win there, Kyle. Yeah. Well, if you make as many wild predictions as I do, you know some of them are bound. You know, I'm, I'm sort of like uh, uh, sort of like some of the college football prognosticators just throw enough stuff out there, and and you know two percent of it's bound to be right. You're a, you're a volume shooter. You're J.R. Smith. You're, you put up a lot of shots. I was going to say a couple things about Sunset Boulevard, which I actually um, rewatched uh, today for the first time in a really long time, probably 10 or 15 years. Um, I'd forgotten that's where the Gordon Cole name uh, came from. Uh, and I'd also like to point out that whatever episode that was where uh, Diane appeared, episode five or six, um, she was drinking at Max Vaughn's bar. And I had a theory back then that uh, that bar was, in fact, named after the character from Sunset Boulevard, Max von Meyerlink, uh, who is Norma Desmond's butler in the film. And he is her former husband and former uh, director from her silent film days. And he's played the film by uh, Eric von Stronheim. So that, I believe, uh, with a second, a direct Sunset Boulevard reference, my, my theory about Max von's bar has been proved correct. Um, but Gordon Cole, the character uh, in the film, you know, which is about uh, the entanglement of uh, a struggling screenwriter, um, named Joe Gillis played by William Holden in the film. He goes to, uh, I think to escape some creditors trying to repossess his car, uh, to a decaying mansion on sunset Boulevard, where the former silent film star Norma Desmond played, uh, by Gloria Swanson lives. And, uh, in the film, you know, uh, to kind of, uh, uh, Joe Gillis kind of becomes like a kept man, uh, and is, ostensibly working on a, a screenplay of a version of Salome for Norma Desmond's great return. Uh, but she uh, eventually goes to the Paramount studios uh, and she had sent her screenplay to Cecil B. DeMille, who she used to work with, who's I believe played by himself in the film. Um, and she keeps getting these calls from a Gordon Cole uh, in the film. And she thinks that it's like some Paramount exec. And she's like, I want to talk to Cecil B. DeMille herself. And so she goes down to uh, the studio and Gordon Cole, I think is, is called um, and he is actually not interested in the script at all. He had seen Norma Desmond's car or her like, you know, luxury car, 1920s era luxury car and wanted to use it in a period piece. And so he's just kind of, you know, Paramount studios, exec kind of, you know, like a, a, a minor character. Um, but in the scene that, Dougie watches. Uh, it's uh, Norma had visited um, Cecil B. DeMille on set and was recognized by a lot of people at Paramount where she used to be a star and she'd been a recluse for years and has this kind of moment of recognition. They put the spotlight on her. Cecil B. DeMille had read the script, thought it was terrible, but is trying to spare her feelings. Uh, and then uh, she has this moment of, we're going to get the gang all back together again. And everyone's, you know, I think trying to, Oh, trying to shield her. Uh, and the scene that, that um, Dougie uh, sees, um, you know, Cecil B. DeMille saying, get Gordon Cole, tell him to stop calling her uh, about her car. Uh, Gordon Cole, I couldn't find the actor's name. Uh, he's not listed in the final credits for the film, but he uh, does appear in one scene. He does actually bear a passing resemblance to Lynch himself and does talk with a distinctive accent, albeit not uh, too loudly. And Lynch has told a story uh, about the Gordon Cole character here. And I, I 
Uh, in the story, he said that if you drive to Paramount Studios from the east, you pass, I believe, a Gordon and Cole streets. And so he, I assume, figured this out while he was driving to work at Paramount uh, f- while he was working on The Elephant Man in the early 80s. And so he figured that's where the name uh, came from. But uh, a few other just kind of minor points about Sunset Boulevard, which Lynch has said is one of his very favorite films uh, and is referred to several times Um you have a story that begins with the discovery of a corpse in water. Uh, it's actually narrated by uh, Joe Gillis, who's already dead in the first scene of the film. And you have one in which the spirit of that kind of corpse lingers all over the story in the same way that Loris does overall at Twin Peaks. Uh, rewatching it, the interior of Norma Desmond's, you know, kind of 1920s, 1930s era uh, mansion in black and white does bear an interesting resemblance to the fireman's castle um, what we've seen of, you know, what I think we were calling the White Lodge uh, in episode 14. Um, and the narration at the very end, you know, um, Joe uh, Gillis is, is sort of narrating from beyond the grave. Norma's making her way down the stairs to be arrested by the police for a crime she's committed. Um, she thinks she's actually on the way for what she famously says her ready for her close up, Mr. DeMille. So she thinks she's being hailed as a star. But the narration in that scene says that the dream that Norma had clung to so closely eventually had enfolded her. And so the idea of a dream being clung to too closely that enfolds one seems very, very familiar and generative from Lynch's work. Uh, seems like what we've seen of Audrey so far in this season. There's also some characters in Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire um, that uh, the, the idea of a dream clung to too closely and folding one could uh, refer to. And Kyle, in answer to your question on the show notes, I think I am saying that in Sunset Boulevard, Norman Desmond is the dreamer who dreams and then lives inside the dream. Yeah, no, that's, that's all, that's all great stuff. And, and you're right. You called it on Max Vons. I thought it was Max Von Cito, but then I'm the one who a minute ago couldn't call to mind the name Phil Steele and completely stepped on that. So, um, yeah, this, this is a great scene, uh, from a, from a lot of viewpoints. I mean, you've got this soft lighting. Janie E is the second of three women, uh, after Nadine and, and prior to, uh, uh, to Lucy that we see wearing these floral print, print sweaters. Uh, Dougie's eating cake off a green plate. He's fiddling with the green salt and pepper shakers. He presses the red button on the remote and it does nothing. He presses the green button on the remote and then the TV comes on and we hear Norma Desmond say, I'm not worried. Everything will be fine. The old team together again. Nothing can stop us. And then JR, you're right. That's, that's this great moment of awakening for him. And then he crawls toward the camera on all fours like a, like a dog. Uh, and, and he's looking out at the audience the whole time, which has been a thing that Lynch has liked doing ever since Frank Booth in, in Blue Velvet. And, and he, he, he does everything short of winking at us. And his actions in this scene illustrate, uh, uh, more so than anything since the call letters of the New Mexico radio station in part eight, just how truly the the people behind Twin Peaks The Return get the participants in this podcast because he's making these canine movements and doing this heartfelt emoting, telling us to just love the dog. And then he proceeds to demonstrate that he quite literally understands the silverware <laughs> because that's what he jams into the, the socket. And that's what hopefully restores, you know, original recipe Dale Cooper. It's a beautiful scene. Yeah, Love it. And the, 
And the ZZ Top was a shout out to our ZZ Top discussion in the Viva Las Vegas <laughs> right. uh, episode <laughs> and our cold open from that episode. So it's it's all shout outs to us all the way around. I didn't draw this parallel until you said it just now, Kyle, but he crawls forward on all fours towards the viewer uh, like the woman in the roadhouse exactly. at the end of this episode. Right. And then Janie E screams like the woman in the roadhouse at the end of this episode. Right. And there's an electrical yeah, shock, some... too. Yeah. In both right. of those scenes. And I, I think... And, and Ken, I think some enterprising Reddit uh, users actually juxtaposed the two scenes side by side and they almost match. I think you had to do a, a slightly creative editing, but they, they are uh, pretty closely parallel in terms of actual time length. Wow. There you go. Wait, I missed that, Jeff. What, what, what was the time comparison? I think some, the, 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 uh, girl at the end crawling toward the camera and then screaming. Someone I think had it from basically they lined that up with uh, Cooper hearing the electrical buzzing going to the ground and crawling to the camera. I mean, crawling, you know, for uh, and then when he's when Janie e screams and when she screams, I think it's when they timed it from and it's it it works pretty pretty closely. It's it's pretty similar. Is it as as good as the uh, the glass box versus the space box? It was not quite as good as that, but it was very similar. I feel like probably the same people were behind it. Yeah. It didn't work quite as well as that, but it was, it was a really similar thing. Okay. Well, the next scene uh, is a really uh, powerful and and sad, really sad scene. Hawk is in his office uh, and Margaret, the log lady calls him for the last time uh, to tell him that, that she's going to die. And she says, watch for that one. The one that I told you about, the one under the moon on blue pine mountain. And she says that her log is turning gold. She again says that she can't say much over the phone. And you know, the, the end of the conversation uh, is Hawk saying very sweetly, uh, goodbye, Margaret. And you know, if your heart didn't drop when you were watching the scene, you know, you're, you're not a human. You're a tulpa. Well, you failed the test of the Gomjabar. Right. Yeah. That's, ex- <laughs> that's exactly right. Wow. <laughs> yeah. This was an amazing. All these scenes, you know, since the very first one, you know, of these conversations between the log lady and Hawk had been tearing me up. And this was just the capstone to all of them. And it was just, you know, very unflinching, unsparing, but, you know, honest and respectful and truthful depiction of like sort of a death experienced in full awareness. Um, and I, I really liked how uh, Margaret said Hawk, like her recognized death as being a change, not an end, you know, a, a change of state, a change of being. And just her, the farewell of, you know, my log is turning gold. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's one of the, the best farewell lines I've ever heard from any character in anything. And I liked how that sense of log, you know, wood, you know, changing into gold, the spiritual perfection of alchemy mirrors that process of transformation or, or change. And um, I, you know, I remember I read some reviews of um, this episode and people were upset with Hawk for not saying anything here. And I loved that he didn't, I loved the respect uh, and that deep knowledge between them of just listening to her and then saying good night and then goodbye. But, uh, uh, and a, a, a beautiful scene. One of, one of the best. Yeah, at the, the, at the conclusion, we see the light at Margaret's Margaret's cabin go out, uh, which is which is really, really sad. Yeah, I had one more theory about the interesting thing she says. You know, there's there's she says there's a conversation 
they used to have, you know, not on the phone. And she's, you know, talking about the one we talked about under the moon on Blue Pine Mountain. Um, and at first, you know, I kind of was thinking, okay, that's Doppel Cooper, that's Judy or, or Major Briggs, or perhaps it's something on Hawk's map that's going to manifest itself. Perhaps it's Nido. Um, but there was a, a, a great theory that was not mine. I'll give credit where it's due from Jeff Jensen at Entertainment Weekly, who again writes some of the best um, uh, reviews each week of uh, the individual episodes. But he referred back to an episode between Hawk and the Log Lady in season one, episode six. And this is, uh, we talked about this episode during the Jackrabbit's palette sequence a few uh, weeks ago. And this is where, you know, I think Harry, uh, S. Truman, uh, Doc Hayward, Cooper, and Hawk are all out looking for the cabin where Laura was on uh, the night of her death. And they come across another cabin, which is the same one where Margaret Lannerman lives. And she's like, I've been waiting for you. And, you know, says the amazing line, shut your eyes, you'll burst into flames, serves tea to everyone. Uh, and uh, she says that, um, you know, I think the owls and her log know things about the night Laura died. But she tells this interesting story and says that her husband met the devil on the mountain when he died uh, and says uh, that fire is the devil hiding like a coward in the smoke. And Hawk responds to this, the wood holds many spirits, doesn't it, Margaret? Uh, and so this was a non-telephone exchange uh, between them and this reference to the devil and this reference to fire uh, called to mind, uh, you know, the images of, of fire on uh, Hawk's map, uh, as well as that horn thing that we saw also on Hawk's map that he didn't want to talk to Frank Truman about as well as the thing we saw on Doppel Cooper's Ace of Spades card. So that was, I, you know, again, Jeff Jensen's theory, but a really amazing one. And I, if, if it's true, it's a great callback to, to uh, one of the log ladies, many, many great scenes uh, in, uh, in Twin Peaks. Yeah. And maybe, and Jeff, this just occurred to me as you were saying that, you know, you're talking about Hawk won't talk about that. Maybe that's Judy. I mean, Doppel Cooper yeah. says he want that. You know, he's looking for whatever that thing is. I mean, he's had some past experience with it. He's trying to trying to get back to it. Um, maybe he doesn't know it when he sees it. Maybe he's run into it, and and that's who Judy is. And he just doesn't recognize the, you know, whatever face it's wearing as Judy. Um, right. Maybe that's it. That's why they won't. They both won't talk about it. Okay, so we go from here to Audrey's hellscape. Uh, eternal recurrence, uh, Beckett play, uh, where, you know, she still hasn't been able to get out and go to the roadhouse. Charlie puts his coat on, but takes it off. Uh, it, the scene concludes with basically Audrey charging it at Charlie and choking him while screaming, I hate your fucking guts. And, you know, we're all kind of, kind of with her on that point with regard to both him and these scenes in general. She speaks for us all. I will say I laughed really hard when Charlie said, okay, off comes the coat. That was great. That was great. I mean, it's funny. I, I, I brought this up before, but I, I felt like I do that to my kids all the time. <laughs> and, and, and your and kids I, I never saw, leave the I, house. I saw, my, I saw my kids' frustration through the eyes of Audrey. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say one and a half quick things about this scene. I still hate the, all of this so much, but uh, it, it did seem like a Beckett play. It did seem like we were doing a lot of theater of the absurd this week, right down to the point where the rhinoceros figured prominently in Stephen's mumbling, uh, although I had to turn my volume way up and turn eight kinds of subtitles on to tell that he was saying the word rhinoceros. But that that seems like an Ionesco shout out, um, and it seems like we're doing theater of the absurd. And this was the first time where I really felt like Audrey is trapped in some kind of a nightmare that she cannot escape from not just that like you know these forces were uh, conspiring against her but that she couldn't bring herself to get out of this kind of an argument and get out the door right it was like the exaggerated dream logic version of when you're having an argument with your spouse or significant other or somebody and you can't stop dwelling on something even though you know it's stupid and besides the point you know but i i I, you know was thinking i guess that the you know two of the most popular you know, theories, you know, about what's going on between Audrey and Charlie in these scenes. I mean, you know, one is that she is in a coma, uh, and this is all some like, you know, nightmare waking fugue state, whatever. And if that's true, you know, all this stuff about, you know, Charlie's sleepiness, her insistence on it's being late, you know, I guess that could be some manifestation of whatever it is. Audrey is in her inner self or something, keeping her in a coma. Um, we do get that interesting threshold reference, which did bring right. to mind, the dweller, the dweller on the threshold that Hawk talked about with reference to, uh, the lodges and, you know, meeting your, uh, shadow self. Um, but yeah, I mean, if that's true, at least there's hope in that she does attack. She does see that side of herself that whatever is keeping her asleep and, uh, attacks it violently at the end of this sequence, which would, I guess, be some move forward. Uh, but then, you know, the other one is that, all right, so she is mentally ill and Charlie is some, manifestation of that or a therapist in some way. And then I thought about the actual probably most horrifying scenario and the one I've seen the least about, which is what if this is real? You know, what if Audrey is married to Charlie and this is their marriage? This is their arrangement uh, between each other. This is how things are conducted. And then what if this is where Richard Horn right. <laughs> grew up? Right. You know, like that, and that, and that I think is, probably the most horrifying and nightmarish and hellish scenario, which is probably why it's not been uh, discussed the most, but yeah, it's uh, yeah. I, I, I thought about that. And then I also thought about, I, I was thinking a lot um, this week about, I guess the reality that we only have three more hours of this was, was uh, kicking in for me. And I started to get really sad about it. And I thought about some of Lynch's comments that, the reason he was drawn to television in the first place and why he wanted to try a show with Mark Frost back in 1989, 1990 was the lure of serial storytelling and the idea of a story that you would never have to end. Uh, and I, maybe there's a little of Audrey in us in terms of, we know if she goes out that door to the roadhouse, this thing is going to start to end. And, uh, this kind of infinite delay, I think the episode that I think that was 12 that, annoyed us and annoyed a lot of other viewers of the show seemed like indulging this Audrey's first appearance, but this kind of insane slowness and the, the French woman taking a long time to get off the couch. But uh, I think it's going to, you know, in some will move quickly and the resolutions uh, that do happen, you know, the, I don't know the, the thing, this, these Audrey scenes, you know, five months from now, we're probably going to be loving <laughs> in a different way. And we're going to be sharing Audrey's reluctance to to end this narrative, especially if this is all the Twin Peaks we're going to get. So that's all. Yeah. And I, I find myself at this point just wishing Audrey had died in the bank explosion. 
Wow. wow. Better, better what that a, what than this. What a reversal this. that better is. Better that than this. Yeah. Better, better pretty much anything than this, especially since it does seem like the Richard Horn product of bad coop rape thing is, is going to be canon for all of this. So I, I, I am most of the way there with you, Kyle. It's brutal. It's rough. Well, our final scene is at the Roadhouse, uh, where uh, a band called The Veils are playing uh, a song that Ken, you thought somebody named LP could, who's LP? Yeah, LP, El Producto. He's, uh, the producer for Company Flow, uh, and he's half of Run the Jewels, uh, who I just saw, uh, at Bill Graham a few weeks ago. They're great. Um, I met him in Boston like f- 15 years ago, and he's, he's amazing and a, and a good dude. Um, uh, but yeah, I just thought the, the beat sounded like an LP sort of production, and Kyle informs me that the yes. credits say he actually did produce the song. That, that so is I'm, correct. I'm patting myself on the yeah, back. Yeah, no, you, here. you nailed that. I, 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 when I read that in the show notes, I, I thought you were being sarcastic because you'd read that but no it in fact uh, i had no idea who he was either but yeah he's he's the one who produced it in according to the credits that's great what a good song too axolotl yeah no and it really it was kind of like a cross uh, yeah it was like a a hybrid of run the jewels and nick cave uh yeah. at, at birth birthday party era nick cave it was good stuff um <clears throat> anyway but uh, th- the song is good but the scene that plays out is really disturbing uh, where there's uh, a young girl sitting at a booth, uh, two large men approach, and she says, I'm waiting for someone, and then they kind of gesture to her, and, and she, she gets out of the booth and then comes onto the ground while they sit down at the booth. She proceeds to crawl on her hands and knees slowly into the throng of people dancing to the song and then rears up and starts screaming, which is the end of the episode. Uh, and there you go, episode 15, or part 15, and episode 15 of Wrapped in Podcast. And the, the credits the credits roll over a shot of the motel from the Black Lodge again. And if you stick around for the yeah. very end of it, you will yeah. see the bosomy, woman, the bosomy woman whose head is obscured staring at you from what, I guess if you had been trying to go in to room number eight and it looked to the right, this utterly nightmarish image that ends the episode, which also was dedicated to, interestingly enough, in memory of Margaret Lanterman, right. the log lady's character. And when she first appeared, it had been dedicated to Catherine Coulson, the actress who played the log lady. So right. I thought that was a, right. an interesting detail. Yeah, no, I, I think it is an interesting detail because it tells us that 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 uh, Dale Cooper is coming back. If Dougie had died, we, we'd have darn sure gotten, you know, in memory of uh, Douglas Jones, in memory of Dale Cooper if he was dead. But yeah, that, I noticed that as well, Jeff, at the very end. It shifts the camera angle so you're looking at where she would have been coming from. Interestingly, she's standing in the shadows. You can't see her face, just like Gordon couldn't see Cooper's face in his Monica Bellucci dream. And the other interesting thing about the shift of camera angle when you're looking at the motel is... Before you could just see the shadows and the darkness and the shrubbery was in the background. This one, though, you can see the green roof. The green shrubbery is much more visible. It's very much in the foreground, which again is, uh, for me, literally from the opening shot to the closing shot of this episode, you've got this, this enveloping benevolent green. You know, the evildoers are moving toward their doom. The good guys are getting the band back together. I know there were a couple of, you know, parts that were not, uh, uh, real nice to watch but at the end of the day i come away with this i don't know that i've been in a better mood at the end of a twin peaks the return episode yet than i was at this one of feeling like okay this this is coming together 
I felt so much more that way after 14 than I did after 15. And obviously nothing will approach the pure aesthetic glee I felt after eight. But um, yeah, I just, I felt so bummed by this one. And obviously some of it is, is sad in a moving and elegiac sort of way. Some of it is, is depressing or grim in a way that works for the plot. And then, you know, there's Steven, of which I have said enough. Yeah. And I mean, we do get, we do get some moments of, of joy in this episode. I mean, obviously Norman, big Ed, but then you know, potentially yeah. Dougie's, you know, reawakening and that kind of moment. But then I don't know, Kyle, we had the log lady's death, which was a good death, but still was, was heartbreaking. And then, but we, we, we go from that to, you know, we also had Steven kill himself. We had Audrey still stuck, uh, in, you know, Twin Peaks dinner theater. And then we end with a scene of, someone screaming in despair or anguish on the floor. So there were some Robins there, but uh, it was interspersed with a lot of despair. And horror. And I I get that. I do. But we all hate Steven. Steven's dead. Everybody's better off without Steven. We don't like where Audrey is. Audrey doesn't either. And she announces that she hates Charlie and she, she takes action. She, she attacks him to try and get herself out of her situation. The girl crawling on the floor, I think is very much analogous uh, to, to Dale Cooper. I mean, she's almost literally dropped into non-existence. She crawls along the floor. There's the electrical crackle. There's the scream. And yeah, it kind of bugged me at first because you had such a strong statement the previous episode with Sarah Palmer but but you know this is the roadhouse which as much as the sheriff station has been the center of all that's good the roadhouse has been the center of all that's bad and yet we saw the you know the the green garden glove of glorious goodness you know uh, pelting the bad guys in there we had this uh, what I got from that girl at the end was she's mad as hell and she's not going to take it anymore and that's the message of of what the good guys are doing they they understand Understand the Black Lodge has been ascendant. They're ready to fight back, and and that's what gives me a sense of hope. I'm sure Ken's right. It's not going to end with with you know complete narrative wrap up. We're not going to know who every single person we've heard talked about at the Roadhouse was. It Lynch is never that linear or that clear. But in terms of of a satisfactory ending that that makes you feel like yeah okay. Cooper isn't standing in front of the the shattered mirror asking how Annie is. I, I think we're going to get a, an ending that we can live with, even if it's somewhat unsettling and somewhat unclear. I don't think the bad guys are going to win. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me that you are were nursing this grudge for a really long time, right? About the um, how's Annie and Cooper looking in the mirror ending to the first series because I loved that ending, and I mean, I came at it at a different point in my life and at a different point in the history of the show, right? I didn't watch the show until several years after it ended. But having thought that so much of season two was awful and um, uh, had had fallen off after Lynch left, having Lynch come back and direct that finale and having that ending, I was I was deeply satisfied with it. I've always thought it was a great way to wrap up the original series, you know. So I I, I just think I come at it from a somewhat different perspective. I, I will say with regard to the stuff I we're all confident is not going to get tied up, right? The people who sit at those oh, booths sure, in the roadhouse sure. and talk about right. None of us think that's going to get tied into anything or much of right. anything anyway. Um, I did have the thought for the first time this week that maybe that's just Lynch and Frost leaving the door open for not more Twin Peaks on TV, because I don't think we're going to get that, but more world building, that possibly they would do like a secret history too, or um, some other media where you would have, you know, these other townspeople's stories told in some little vignettes, something like the 
the Buffy comics or something. Who would ever right. get by that? Right. I mean, the, the, se- the secret <laughs> history of the dumb shit characters you don't care about? Yeah. No. I mean... No, but that they would be wrapped in like the stuff with Carl Rod's background was wrapped into the Secret History One. I'm not saying it would be purely about that. No, but so, right, but, but, Carl, but Carl Rod's a character like we really you love and you're introduced to. Like I could see doing that for like Red. Like I don't I, I don't know how they're going to resolve the the story of Red and Shelley in the next three hours, along with all the other you know massive ontological shit that's flying around. Yeah, I'm sure they're um, not going to. Uh, and I could see, I could absolutely see spinning those, but but like these random characters referenced at the Roadhouse. I mean, maybe it's it's possible, you and see, I don't doubt that 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 uh, that Mark Frost could, you know, just like he picked up, you know, Dougie Milford as yeah. a as a as a you know hugely important character in the Secret History. He might pick up some of those people at the booths, but God, at least even Dougie Milford was like interesting on some level I, I i dispute that no i think i think you made my case for me with dougie milford i think that's a really good example and like think about the star wars franchise that we've referenced in this podcast and previously every single member of the goddamn cantina band has like a thousand page backstory at this point right somebody has picked they up had to give threads. them names as a action figures that's, right yeah that's yeah, what i was that's gonna it. ask you ken. they had to name them so they'd have an action figure ken so Once they had that then they could they could develop it so you're predicting something it's like you know like rogue zebra like an armpit sparkle exactly you know, yeah story Our or something like that that's, was that's exactly not working the sort of thing for project blue book tales. that did not happen no <laughs> no i'm predicting tales of twin peaks tales of twin peaks um a mark frost supervised dark horse comics imprint or something. i mean there is i i i kind of see what you're saying and I, I i i think i was explaining in a way last week it's almost like you know the parts of a dream that are just kind of extraneous that you forget you know forget about later on but like i mean there and i also and as we approach the end of the season, you know, I was thinking about my desire for Twin Peaks to continue forever. And, you know, like at this point, having it every Sunday night and then a week to think about it has been this sort of incredible, unbelievable gift that I never thought would have happened, you know, uh, and that the fact that I want it to continue forever. So I probably would watch that and buy that, you know, and, and then. But I, but I also thought about, you know, why Lynch said he wanted to do a television show and why he was so opposed to wrapping up uh, the story of Laura's murder that he wanted a narrative that continued indefinitely. And so I think on some level, you do get almost this digest, you know, of like the life of the town and you get parts that are more important. I, I think there will be with Kyle a resolution of some of the more important storylines, but not all of them. And I think there is a sense that it's just going to continue outside the scope of the 18 hours that we got. So, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, no, I buy that. I buy that. I mean, it's 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 analogous to, you know, Faulkner with Yachnapatawpha County. You had certain families that you followed through generations, and then you had these ancillary characters that might appear in a scene or two, but were not, you know, significant to the overall narrative. And, Jeff, I, I think you're uh, uh, along the right track there in saying that they're the parts of the dream that – kind of disappear and, and may get spun out. But yeah, I'm not I'm not expecting Mark Frost to lead me on some grand adventure in a book somewhere that's gonna show me how the insurance agent and and mutant fish puke girl and and uh trick who got run off the road are are gonna you know be central and integral to uh to the you know the ultimate battle of of good versus evil and we're gonna find out who everybody's uncle really is. I don't think that's happening yeah, he- at any level. He does have that that final dossier book coming out though, and he does seem more invested in this kind of 
ancillary material than Lynch does. You know, I think for Lynch, it's, it's the film, you know, it, it, or it's whatever it's the, it's the episodes and it's fire walk with me and maybe the missing pieces, but I don't think, you know, Lynch never read the secret history as he says. And so, when yeah. we do the final dossier, uh, book club podcast, I may be proving completely wrong, but I'm, I'm not anticipating that trick is going to be explained to me. Well, and how much would it actually take to tie these little ancillary scenes into the mystery that we're watching now in something like the final dossier? Again, I don't think it'll, it's going to happen in the show at all. And I, I gave up on that weeks ago, but it wouldn't be hard at all to imagine some Tammy type character looking through the file and being like, Oh, we know now that the sparkle that Steven was taking when he shot Becky and then uh, took his own life was supplied by this, um, failed burger shop employee who had this arm pit infection, right? Um, and her home life situation was that she was involved with Trick, who knew Charlie and Chuck or whatever, like just as a way of tying little details into the central plot. Uh, all I can say is that I would watch a Mitch and Brothers spinoff forever. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and just, only if Jim Belushi is in it, as, as Bradley Mitchum, I, I would watch that and I would never stop watching it. Well, and if, and if they give Bushnell Mullins his own show, I'll, I'll watch that. But I'm, I'm not, I'm not watching Zombie Fish Girl, Insurance Salesman, Armpit Sparkle Girl. Um, that's that is not that is not a television series that I will be tuning in for. I will not be a part of that podcast. The Wrapped in Armpit podcast. I will not be a, a panelist. But Kyle, the the insurance salesman is the key to it all. Don't you realize? That? I did go read that article, and and I like that article, and I, I don't even discount that. But you know, mutant fish girl not going to be the key to the whole thing. <laughs> all right, sh- should we wrap it up at that? <laughs> yes, <please>. guys. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think with, with with Kyle's concluding thoughts about mutant fish girl, the log lady okay, says, well, "One day the sadness will end." That's right. That's right. Well, thanks, everybody. I, I want to thank our listeners for getting through what is probably another really long episode. I'm sorry this is coming out a little bit later than normal. Uh, the solar eclipse and my wedding anniversary uh, conspired against us in getting this recorded early this week. And Jeff's wife's birthday. We'll be back. Don't forget yeah. Jeff's wife's And Jeff's birthday. wife's birthday. And we'll be, we'll be back to recording on Tuesday night as usual next week after part 16. Uh, but thanks everybody. Uh, and, uh, we will talk to you in a week. Farewell. Good night. The beauty of her under electric light. The beauty of her Electric light tears my heart out every